Good morning. Thanks. My, uh, my name is Spencer. I'm one of the elders here at Hiawatha Church. Um, welcome again, especially if you are, are brand new or if you're just checking out our church. We're really glad that you are here this morning. Uh, part of the, one of our responsibilities as being an elder is we get to preach at least once a year. So that's, that's why I'm up here. That's why Chris gets a break uh, today. I'm very honored and excited to be preaching for you this morning. Uh, we have a, a great passage, tough passage to hear, but um, I'm excited to preach it. I really, really love this church, and uh, I'm very excited about <laughs> being able to be here. Um, some of you may not know me, so I'm just going to let you know a little bit about myself. Uh, I'm married to Amy. There's a picture of my beautiful wife up there. Uh, we've been married for six years. She's my, my best friend. Uh, she's a kind kind critic and my biggest supporter. And she's also also now a, a phenomenal mother. Um, we've been serving together on the Koinonia team, which is our missionary care team here at church, as well as uh, teaching in King's, in King's Kids. And then uh, we've also been leading a small group together for the past five years. Um, and then just a few months ago, we added another to our family. That's uh, Charlie Paul, our son. He's five and a half months old. He just got his first tooth this week. So it's been a pretty, uh, pretty tough week on the whole family. Um, but since he's so adorable, I had to show you a few more pictures. So this is, this is him, or this is me. Or can you go back one? That is what I found on Father's Day, which was pretty amazing. Uh, that cute smile looking up at me. And uh, this last picture, this is what I get to wake up to most days, to come into his crib and and see him smiling like that, although it's only most days. There are, as, as parents out there know, there are some other days where you get woken up a different way. Um, but he's, he's pretty fantastic. God's been so gracious in our lives. He, he was born sick uh, and was in the hospital for, for over a week, um, but thanks to all your prayers and uh, his grace, he's doing better, he's healthy, um, and he's, God's just been teaching us so much about who God is, his character as, as a father, um, unconditional love, so many things by, by just being a parent. So we're super blessed to be in this next chapter of our lives. Uh, I've also been a second grade teacher for the past six years at a Hispanic charter school in, in St. Paul. There's a picture of 30 of my seven and eight-year-olds there. Um, and I would, I would have told you, you know, five, six, uh, even, even four years ago that, that that was my dream job. I was super blessed to be um, at a school and in an occupation that I absolutely loved and honestly would have called that my dream job. But uh, after a few years, um, God changed my heart. And I, I even remember, you know, six years ago, five years ago, Chris and Mike, I even remember these converse, conversations where they asked if I'd ever be interested in planning a church one day or being a pastor. And I remember being so adamant that no way, never. I love my job. This is, you know, where God has called me. I, you know, Hiawatha is great and all, but not for me. And so uh, God's really done a number on my heart. He's changed um, what I'm passionate about, what, uh, where I think he's called me. So um, I'm now going to, on September 1st, I'll be starting as a pastor of community life here at Hiawatha. And I'm super excited about that. I feel a very strong call uh, to this church, and I love this church. Um, and I appreciate your prayers, prayers for me as I start my new job, prayers for our family, that you'd pr protect them. And uh, we're praying for really big things in the next few years here 
here at our church. So that's a little bit about me. Uh, for the past few months, we have been in a series in the book of Matthew. Uh, the book of Matthew is the first book in the New Testament. is written by one of Jesus' disciples, Matthew, uh, who used to be a tax collector. Uh, Jesus called him out of that former uh, occupation and lifestyle, and, and Matthew became one of Jesus' disciples. Um, and he ended up writing uh, one of the books of the Bible, the first book in the New Testament. That's where we've been. Um, we're in a mini-series within Matthew that we're calling uh, Declaring and Demonstrating the Gospel of the Kingdom. So the past few chapters, we've been seeing how Jesus has been both declaring the gospel and the kingdom through preaching and through teaching, as well as uh, demonstrating it, giving credibility to all the wor- words that he's saying by doing healings and miracles and mighty works. And we're going to uh, get, get into more of that when we get to our passage. So today we'll be in Matthew 11, verses 20 through 24. And I'm entitling this sermon, Woe, Jesus' Woes to Unrepentant Cities. Let's read from our passage today. It'll be up on the screen. It's also in your worship folder. Matthew 11, 20 through 24. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done, because they, had not, because they did not repent. Woe to you, Chorazin. Woe to you, Bethsaida. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. But I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades. For if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. Let's pray. Holy Spirit, come here this morning. I pray that you would use me to preach your word. Despite myself, despite my my flaws, God, we pray that your spirit would open our hearts this morning to learn from your word, to hear from you, to be convicted of our sin by you. Help us to believe Jesus is who he said he is. Pray as we look at, your, look at your word today and see what Jesus said and what Jesus did, we would have to believe that he is who he said he is, that Jesus is the Son of God. We pray as, as we look over this this morning, as we reflect on the gospel and Jesus' teachings, that your spirit would empower us to repent of our sins, to turn away from our own self-worship, and that we would believe. And Father, let Jesus' warnings this morning scare us out of apathy, and towards repentance and faith and worship. Pray this in Jesus' name, by the power of the Holy Spirit, and for your glory. Amen. All right, so before we start to unpack today's passage and try to understand it, we're going to quickly look at what Jesus has been doing in the previous few chapters. So we're going to kind of set the stage for uh, for today's uh, passage and where Jesus is pronouncing these woes on these cities. So back in Matthew 10, just uh, the chapter before this chapter, we see that Jesus calls his disciples and then sends them out. So this is a great example for us to see when Jesus calls people to him, when people become his disciples, they both sit at his feet and worship and learn and grow, but at the same time, he also sends them out to make other disciples. So Jesus calls his disciples and then he he sends them out and he tells them to only go to the Jews. That's kind of important. We'll get back to that in our passage in just a second. But at this time, 
Jesus is just sending out his disciples to other Jews. He's sending them out to proclaim that the kingdom of God is at hand. And Jesus warns that it would be better off for the land of Sodom on the day of judgment than for the cities who reject Jesus and his message. And we'll get back to uh, this land of Sodom, what, what this city is and what it represents in just a second. And then later on in Matthew 10, Jesus teaches his disciples what discipleship will cost. It will cost them stuff. Jesus teaches his disciples that persecution will come. He tells them that, be, uh, that they are persecuting him. And of course, if they persecute the master, the teacher, they're going to persecute his disciples as well. as well. He tells them not to have fear. He tells them, don't fear people that can throw you in jail or even kill your body, but fear God who can both kill the body and destroy the soul. So it reminds them to keep things in perspective, to please God over men. Jesus tells his disciples, he warns them that he came to bring the sword and not to bring peace. That Jesus' message, the gospel, would actually tear families apart, not bring a harmonious utopia where everyone's holding hands and singing songs around a campfire like some would like Jesus' message to be. And then he also tells them that those who receive Jesus will, will receive a great reward. And then uh, last week's passage, Chris preached on John the Baptist. So John the Baptist uh, was, was a prophet. He was telling people about uh, the coming of the new Messiah. He was baptizing people in the Jordan. But now he's thrown in prison. And so in, in uh, the beginning of this chapter, Matthew 11, John the Baptist is now in prison and he sends his disciples to Jesus to say, hey, are you really the one? Okay? When I baptized you, I said, hey, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That's him. That's him right there. But now I'm sitting in prison. It's been over a year. I'm still in jail. You know, the Romans are still oppressing us. Are you really the guy or was, that, was I mistaken? And in, in Luke, the parallel passage to Matthew 11, it says that uh, in that hour, so right after John's disciples asked Jesus, are you the one? It says, in that hour... So in response to that, Jesus does many miracles. Uh, healing people of diseases and plagues, unclean spirits, casting out demons, and even giving sight back to the blind. And then Jesus says, everything you just saw, go back and tell John. That, that, that was Jesus' response to whether or not he was the Messiah, whether he not, was the Son of God. And then that passage ends with uh, verses 16, 16 through 19. We're going to read that. But to what shall I compare this generation? This is Jesus speaking. Is, uh, it is like children sitting in the marketplace and calling to their playmates. We played the flute for you, and you did not dance. We sang a dirge, and you did not mourn. For John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say, he has a demon. And the son of, the man, and the son of man came eating and drinking, and they say, look at him, a glutton and a drunkard, a friend of tax collectors and sinners. Yet wisdom is justified by her deeds. So we have, we have this generation, these people who are seeing Jesus do all these mighty works and these miracles. So the, the playing the flute part and people did not dance. So Jesus saying, the kingdom of God is near. Look at these amazing works that I'm doing that show that I am who I say I am and they still ignore him. And then when John the Baptist came with more of a, a sobering message telling people to repent, they still did not listen. So back to, back to today's passage, Matthew 11, 20 through 24. Uh, I once, here's, here's a little tidbit for you when you're ever reading the Bible aloud. I once heard a pastor say that if you ever come across really tough names 
of people or names in the cities to just read them really fast and with a lot of confidence. And people will, will then just assume you're saying it right. So I'm going to continue to do that. So back to our passage today. Then he, Jesus, began to denounce the cities where most of his mighty works had been done because they did not repent. So this word denounce, so Jesus began to denounce these cities. It, it means uh, it, an, an insult or a reproach, but something that's justified. So not just uh, saying something mean to be a put down, but it has, has truth behind it. Verse 21, Woe to you, Chorazin, woe to you, Bethsaida, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Tyre and Sidon, they would have repented long ago in sackcloth and ashes. And so this word woe that Jesus is pronouncing on these cities that he had just been doing mighty works in, uh, it conveys doom. It's a very solemn warning, scary warning, and even has a note of pity in it. So Jesus is not saying something out of vengeance, but rather a lament, which shows us that even, even amidst Jesus bringing about judgment, he still has compassion and love for these cities. Verse 22, I tell you, it will be more bearable on the day of judgment for Tyre and Sidon than for you. And you, Capernaum, will you be exalted to heaven? You will be brought down to Hades, for if the mighty works done in you had been done in Sodom, it would have remained until this day. But I tell you that it will be more tolerable on the day of judgment for the land of Sodom than for you. So Jesus is pretty, pretty in your face, pretty, uh, not very PC. Uh, my wife and I have been watching a lot of Gordon Ramsay, which maybe, maybe you know who he is. He's, he's a professional chef, really strong personality. He's in the shows uh, Master Chef and Hell's Kitchen, I believe, and Kitchen Nightmares. And he just goes into these kitchens that are either run horribly or have lazy cooks or horrible food or disgusting refrigerators and freezers. And he just comes in and he just lays in on them. And probably every third word is bleeped out. And uh, So he's, 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 he's very intense. He's very to the point. He doesn't uh, beat around the bush. And I think Jesus is doing something similar, or Gordon Ramsay is doing something similar to, to what Jesus did. The reason that this chef does this is because he needs to snap people out of their apathy or out of their being in la-la land thinking their food is great or just not realizing truth. And Jesus is doing that. So... We saw uh, just a few minutes ago how he's doing this out of love and out of compassion for these people, but at the same time he's speaking very, very harsh words so that they snap out of, hopefully, uh, the sin that they're living in and, and do choose to repent and believe after seeing these mighty works. So who are these, who are these three cities that Jesus is uh, pronouncing woes upon? Maybe you haven't heard of them before. Um, so verse 20 tells us that these are the cities where Jesus performed most of his mighty works. So the majority of his miracles have been performed in, in these cities. So Chorazin, it, it's only mentioned here and in the parallel passage in Luke 10, so we don't know a lot about it except that uh, right here in the, in the Bible it tells us that lots of mighty works have been done there. Bethsaida, that was the home of Peter, Andrew, and John, three of Jesus' disciples, and also the feeding of 5,000 people with just uh, five loaves and two fishes uh, happened in this spot. It happens in just a few chapters. We'll get to that. In, in a few weeks. And what's, what's uh, cool about this, uh, Peter, Andrew, and John being from this city does show us that people could choose to repent and believe and follow Jesus after seeing these miracles, that it wasn't, um, that, that people did have a choice after seeing this to repent and believe 
they, would, they weren't stuck in uh, damnation or not being able to believe. And then Capernaum, this is Jesus' main base for ministry. And so he performed many, many, many miracles here. He healed all kinds of diseases, cast out demons from people, and even raised the dead. And it's really, it's really easy for us uh, to read over these, these miracles and these mighty works. Um, I'm not sure why, but it, it just seems very easy, easy for us to read over them and not really take in what Jesus has done. Um, but, but think about a loved one that has just passed away, maybe in your life. I know the, the pain is still pretty real for Amy and I. Her, her grandfather passed away just a few months ago. So, so think about a loved one who has just passed. And now think how incredible it would be if a man came and talked to that, that corpse or went to that funeral and talked to that person and they arose from the dead. So that, that is what Jesus has been doing, amazing things that just blow your mind. Yet still, these cities, for uh, the vast majority of people, did not repent and did not believe who Jesus who Jesus was. So now who are these other, city, these other cities that Jesus is comparing, comparing them to? So first of all, Tyre and Sidon and Sodom, all three of them were all Gentile cities, so not Jewish cities, not the people of God in the Old Testament. Uh, especially Tyre and Sidon, they were, they were condemned all throughout the Old Testament by many different prophets for their Baal worship, so they're worshiping other gods, their idolatry. And also they're condemned for their arrogant materialism. So both greed and uh, injustice. And then Sodom was the epitome of an evil city, a city of sin. So the story with Sodom is that uh, Abram, who later became Abraham, he had a nephew who went and lived in Sodom. And God came to Abram and said, I'm going to destroy Sodom because they're such an evil city. And the cry of the people around it are, are coming out to me saying, help us. And so God tells Abram he's going to go destroy Sodom because they're so evil. They're so evil that there's no hope of repentance. There's no hope of change. And, and Abram talks with God and he says, because he knows he has family there, and he says, will you still destroy it if, even if there's 50 righteous people, if you find 50 there? And, and God says, for the sake of 50, I, I will spare Sodom. And Abram keeps on uh, saying the same thing over and over and he gets all the way down to 10 people. And God says, if there are ten, if I find ten righteous in this city, I will spare it. And God goes down there and is unable to find ten righteous people. And so it's destroyed by God. And so we see how evil the city is. It's so evil that God cannot even find ten righteous people in this entire city. So it is, it is the epitome of a, a city of sin. It's the quintessential and infamous evil city. Genesis 13 describes the people of Sodom. Now the men of Sodom were wicked, great sinners against the Lord. So when, when you think, or when the, the readers and the hearers of Jesus' words would think of these cities, they'd think of the worst of the worst. So in our culture, that, in our culture, that might be prison inmates who are on death row for murder, child abuse, raping, all different kinds of horrible, horrible things that they're the, the, the most evil in our culture. It would, be, it would be as if Jesus was saying to the religious, saying, these people who are on, on death row for doing the worst possible sins imaginable, it's going to be better off for them on the day of judgment than for you because you saw these great works and did not repent. So it's really a big slap in the face to these people who thought, hey, I'm Jewish. Hey, I'm part of the family of God, part of the ethnic heritage of God's people. 
I get in. I, at least I'm better than Tyre and Sidon and Sodom. But you still might be thinking, whoa, Jesus, you're, you're being pretty harsh. I thought you were all about grace and forgiveness. What's going on here? So, what, so why is Jesus condemning these cities? And we read that in verse 20, Jesus began to denounce these cities because they did not repent. Because they did not repent. One great, one great example of this is Jesus' miracle that we're going to read in a few weeks where he feeds 5,000 by just using some fish and, and some loaves of bread. We read this in John 6. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? Jesus answered them, Truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which, which the Son of Man will give to you. For on him God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, What must we do to be doing the works of God? Jesus answered them, This is the work of God, that you believe in him whom he has sent. And so these people saw this amazing miracle, this, this mighty work, but still did not repent. They just wanted a free meal. They just wanted their bellies to be filled. And Jesus knew their hearts. So what, what is repentance? What is Jesus calling these people to? So repentance means turning from sin, turning from self-worship, turning from idolatry, and turning to faith and forgiveness in Christ. So repentance physically looks like doing a full 180, turning from worshiping yourself as God, only thinking of yourself, uh, being full of sin, turning your back on all that, and turning to the cross. Martin Luther, in his 95 Thesis, his first, his first point was, when the Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. I want to read that again. So there's just one thing that you get today. I want you to get this. When our Lord and Master, Jesus Christ, said, repent, he called for the entire life of believers to be one of repentance. So whether you're repenting from, for the first time in coming to Christ, turning away from your sin and turning to him as Savior, or whether you've been a Christian for a long time, Jesus is still calling us to repent of our sin, to turn away from our sin daily, to die to ourselves, and turn to him. All right, so some might respond to that. They might say, some people might say, you know, I'm really not that bad. I'm, like, I'm not as bad as, you know, the prison inmates who are about to get executed. Not as bad as these evil Old Testament cities that Jesus is referencing. And there's so many more people that are worse than me. Or you might be on the other end of the spectrum and say, I really do realize my sin. I really do realize the, the evilness that is in my heart. And I've done some really horrible things. And God can't forgive what I've done. Maybe he can forgive, you know, a little bit of lying and cheating and a little bit of selfishness, but he can't forgive what I've done. And the, the Apostle uh, John answers these questions in, in, his, in his book, 1 John. One we read, If we say we have no sin, we deceive ourselves, and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say we have not sinned, we make him a liar, and the word is not in us. So we see John answering both of these two extremes. The first extreme, I'm not that bad. 
In verse 8, if we, ha- if we say we have no sin, so this person that says, I'm really not that bad, I don't have that much sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we say we have not sinned, we make him, we make God, we make Jesus a liar and his word is not in us. So that's a word for the people who are saying, my sin's really not that bad, I can deal with it. It really wasn't that evil. And a response to the people that says, God can't forgive my sin. My sin's too evil. I've done too many things. I don't have enough faith. The response to that is, uh, verse 9, if we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us for from all unrighteousness. So we have a promise there that if we do confess our sins and repent, he will forgive us, no matter what, no matter what your sins are. One of the church fathers, St. Augustine, writes, God has promised forgiveness to your repentance. So rest on that promise. God has promised forgiveness to your repentance. So if you repent, he will forgive you, but he has not promised tomorrow to your procrastination. So today is the day of salvation. Today is the day to repent of your sin. God has not promised you tomorrow. He's not promised to live a long life. But he has promised to forgive you. So this morning, repent. So now we know why Christ has denounced these cities. And the next question is, so why didn't they repent? You know, when I first read this in my, you know, prideful, arrogant mind, I thought, well, of course I would have repented if I was there. If I had seen a mighty miracle like that, I, I immediately would have believed Jesus and follow him. And maybe I would, and by, by God's grace, I would have. But it's a great question. So why, why didn't they repent? And much like people's responses today, they don't repent because they don't believe. They don't have faith that Jesus is who he said he is. So why didn't they repent? So just like a lot of people would say today, some of them thought they were already righteous enough. They thought they were in just because of their ethnic heritage, because they were Jews, because they were the people of God in the Old Testament. Or they thought that they could earn God's favor and his his, uh, pleasure and acceptance by the works that they were doing, by following the law. And Jesus responds to this earlier in Matthew. In Matthew 9, he said, Those who are well have no need of of a physician, but those who are sick, go and learn what this means. I desire mercy and not sacrifice, for I came not to call the righteous, but sinners. So earlier we saw that Jesus is saying he didn't come for the people that think that they're already in, for the people that think that they're righteous, but he came to call people who realize their sin, who realize how messed up they are and and how much they're in need of a Savior. Others might respond in a different way. They might say that they thought Jesus was crazy, or that he was evil. In Matthew 9, we read uh, a few weeks ago, as they were going away, behold, a demon-oppressed man who was mute was brought to him, brought to Jesus. And when the demon had been cast out, the mute man spoke, and the crowds marveled, saying, never was anything like this seen in Israel. So another example of a mighty work. It's never, ever been seen in Israel. Even with the prophets all throughout the Old Testament, we, still, we, have, we haven't seen anything like this. But, look at the Pharisees' response here. But the Pharisees said, he casts out demons by the prince of demons. So they're discounting Jesus' Jesus's miracles by saying, well, he's just in, in league with Satan. He's getting his power from, from the devil. So we need to ask ourselves, 
maybe the most important question you'll ever ask, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? Is he just a great teacher? Is he just like Gandhi or, or Confucius or someone who's got some really good sayings and some really good wisdom that we need? So is he just a great teacher? Is he crazy or evil? Was he a con man? So let's look and see what, what does the Bible say about who Jesus is. We've already seen in Matthew a lot of stuff about Jesus being the Son of God. Right away, uh, virgin birth, he was given the name Emmanuel, which means God with us. So right away, the angels proclaimed uh, his name should be called Emmanuel, and that means God with us. So God coming here unto earth, being amongst humankind. We see God the Father calling him, uh, calling Jesus his son at his baptism. When Jesus gets baptized by John the Baptist, he comes out of the water, the heavens open up, and uh, God the Father says, this is my son with whom I am well pleased. Later on we see Jesus uh, casting out demons, and the demons recognizing him, even calling him the son of God. Later on, when Jesus gets tempted in the wilderness, uh, Satan calls him the Son of God, and Jesus doesn't correct him. And he also heals the sick, he heals the blind, the paralyzed, and even raises the dead, as we talked about earlier. And alongside all these mighty works, he forgave people of their sins, which is one of the biggest reasons that, that the religious leaders got so upset with him, because the only person that can forgive sins is God. And remember that Jesus has been painstakingly saying over and over again, the reason that I'm healing you of all these diseases and sickness and blindness and being paralyzed is to point to the spiritual reality of, of you being uh, spiritually dead and spiritually sick. And so all these things are pointing to the greater work that he's going to do at the cross and showing people that he really is who he says he is. Later on in Matthew, we're going to see how nature is going to obey Jesus. A storm comes up, and Jesus and his disciples are in a boat, and he just walks out there, and he talks to the waves and the storm and says, Peace, be still, and it listens to him. Nature listens to him. And then right afterwards, his disciples fall down and worship him and call him the Son of God. We're also going to see that uh, when Jesus asks Peter, one of his disciples, Who do you say I am? Peter responds by calling Jesus the Christ, the Messiah, the Son of the living God. And then Jesus responds by saying, that it is the Father who has revealed that truth to him. We'll also see that Jesus claims to be the judge of the world in the last days. And it's kind of inferred in our passage today. And finally, when Jesus sends out his disciples in the Great Commission, he says, all authority in heaven and on earth has been given to me. So this, this is very God-like language saying, all authority in heaven and on earth is mine. And then also in the New Testament, especially in the book of John, we see uh, Jesus claiming to be equal with God the Father. We see that Jesus also claims to have always existed. We see that he was put to death because he claimed to be God. And his disciples believed that he was God, and most of them were killed and martyred for it. And some of these disciples were even his brothers. So it would be one thing for you to fool some people when they just see you every once in a while. But it's a whole other thing to fool people who are with you for three straight years, seeing you all the time. And especially siblings. You think about uh, my brothers right now. Like They know all the, the many, many sins I've done, the bad attitudes I've had, how I've picked on them. And so to think about for, for brothers 
to go from earlier uh, in, in John, uh, Jesus' family, when he goes back to his hometown, describes Jesus by saying, man, he is out of his mind. That's what they tell other people. So they go from there to worshiping him as God. So how crazy How crazy would that be for someone to, who knows their sibling for years, for 30 years probably, to worship that person as God? All right. And then finally, the ultimate re- uh, reason we should believe that Jesus is who he said he was, that he is the Son of God, is because of the cross and because of the resurrection. Because he rose from the grave, conquered death, defeated death, and is alive today. It's kind of a spoiler, spoiler alert. I know Chris is going to get to this in uh, a few months. But uh, that's, that's, the, that's the thing we hang our hat on at the end of the day, that Jesus died on the cross for our sins, conquered death and sin in our place, and rose from the dead. Author, theologian, apologist C.S. Lewis, in his book Mere Christianity, has a really great argument for, for people who say, uh, that Jesus was just a great teacher. That I like Jesus, yeah, he had some really good sayings. I like that whole Sermon on the Mount thing. Uh, I try to live by that. So he has a great argument against people just saying that Jesus was a great teacher, which is becoming pretty popular with our whole postmodern culture of accepting everyone's beliefs, and, and that's great for you, but not for me, that whole mindset. A lot of people would say Jesus was a good guy. Jesus was a great teacher. They might even say that they like Jesus or they follow Jesus. Um, but C.S. Lewis has a great argument against that. He writes, I'm trying here to prevent anyone saying the really foolish thing that people often say about him, about Jesus. I'm ready to accept Jesus as a great moral teacher, but I don't accept Jesus, sorry, but I don't accept his claim to be God. That is the one thing we must not say. A man who is merely a man and said the sort of things Jesus said would not have been a great moral teacher. He would either be a lunatic on the level with the man who says that he is a poached egg, or else he would be the devil of hell. You must make a choice. Either this man was and is the son of God, or else a madman, or even something worse. You can shut him up for a fool, you can spit at him and kill him as a demon, or you can fall at his feet and call him Lord and God. But let us not come with any patronizing nonsense about his being a great human teacher. He has not left that open to us. He did not intend to. Now it seems to me obvious that he was neither a lunatic nor a fiend, and consequently, however strange or terrifying or unlikely it may seem, I have to accept the view that he was and is God. So today we have to respond. We have to respond, who is Jesus? Who is Jesus? In, in the movie The Matrix, and I was going to do a clip, but I decided not to. Uh, so all of you who, who are kind of sick of uh, the, the early 2000s where Matrix clips were, were filling uh, sermons, I decided to cut that out for you. But in there there's a character. So real briefly, uh, the story of The Matrix is all these people... They think they're in reality, but what what, uh, reality really is is that they're plugged in to these machines. They're like in comas, and they're all just basically having a dream. And so the good guys are trying to wake these people up from this thing called the Matrix and show them that reality is that they're they're actually not in this world. They're actually in this like tube 
in some, some sort of a dream state. Well, this one guy gets out and he realizes how horrible and tough life really is. And he, and, and he wants to go back. He wants to go back to where he was naive and had a good life, even though it wasn't real. And so, but, but we don't have that choice. We don't have that choice to go back to before we knew who Jesus was, to go back and just like C.S. Lewis said, we can't go back to thinking that Jesus was a good teacher. After looking at what Jesus said and did, we have to make a decision. We can't be naive anymore. We can't make a decision. Or we can't not make a decision. We have to choose. Is Jesus, is Jesus who he said he was? Or is he a lunatic? Is he a madman that really did think he was the Son of God? Or was he a con man, an evil man? Someone that was trying to just lie to people? Or was he really who he said he is? So in conclusion today, we need to first realize that judgment is real. Jesus is not only a loving and gracious Savior, but he's also a just and a holy God. And we can't pit some of God's and Jesus' attributes against the others. A lot of people like to think that Jesus was a great teacher, and they really like the idea of his forgiveness and his grace and his love, but they don't like the passages that talk about judgment and about Jesus being holy and just and Jesus actually talks about judgment all the time. And we're seeing that a lot as we're going through Matthew. To realize that judgment is real. Secondly, the gospel we saw in this passage is for the world. So earlier we read in Matthew how Jesus sent out his disciples just to go to the Jews first. And now we see that he's expanding that. He's saying that these, these really horrible cities in the Old Testament, they would have repented if they would have seen these mighty works. And we're seeing now a shift of the gospel, not just being for the Jewish people, but also now being for, for, for the entire world. So, that, uh, so we need to be excited about that. Most of us here are not ethnic Jews. And so we need to be thrilled that we, that we live in a time where the gospel is for us, that we don't have to be ethnic Jews to be, to be saved. And so be used by Christ's spirit to spread that news, that the gospel is for everyone in whatever part of the world that God has placed you, whether that's at home, whether that's across the street, whether that's at work, or if God calls you to a different city or a different country. In in Jesus' great commission, when he sends out his disciples, he tells them to go into all the world. So wherever you go, preach that gospel and be thankful. Praise him that the gospel is not just for ethnic Israel or the Jewish people anymore. A third thing in conclusion... You have to ask yourself, how, how am I going to respond to Jesus, to his claims, to his works? And you have to choose. You can't be naive anymore. You can't go back to just living in, uh, just believing that he was a great teacher only. You have to make a decision. Is he a liar? Is he a lunatic? Or is he the son of God who he said he was? And we will be judged. We'll all be judged with how we respond to Jesus, just like the cities in today's passage. Will you respond with faith and repentance or not? And finally, our last point, the gospel is our mighty work. We have seen such a greater mighty work than they did in these three cities. We're able to see, we're on this side of the cross, we're able to look back and see the gospel. We're able to see Jesus dying on the cross for our sins, being raised from the dead, conquering Satan, death, and our sin. And we're also given other great mighty works, like the Holy Spirit living amongst us and in our lives if we're Christians. 
as well as the Bible. So if Jesus had such hard words to these cities that saw physical miracles, how much more is he going to be tough with us who now have the Bible, who now have the Holy Spirit, who now have the gospel? Let's praise God if you are a believer. Praise God that by his Spirit you do believe and that you have repented. Continue to believe, continue to repent of your sin and cling to that gospel. And and as, as we focus on that, as we realize what he did, as we see our sinfulness more and more, it, re- it helps us realize how great his grace and forgiveness and love really are. And that's going to lead naturally to repentance, to true repentance. So let's end with Jesus' word for us today at Hiawatha Church from Mark. Jesus said, repent and believe in the gospel. Let's pray. Father God, we thank you for Jesus. We thank you for your word and for this really tough word today. We thank you that even in your woes and your denouncing these cities, you still had compassion and even though you were a just and holy judge, you still loved these cities and you wanted repentance. God, we pray that your spirit would continue to convict us of sin And that as we believe the gospel, that we would repent from it. We pray for the people today that have never repented of their sin, that see their sin not as that big. We also pray for the people who think that their sin is insurmountable, that Jesus, that you couldn't figure, or you couldn't forgive that. We pray that today would be the first day of repentance, turning from sin and self-worship and idolatry turning from the old self to you, empty-handed. Thank you for your spirit that, that that convicts us of sin, that empowers us to repent, that gives us faith, that helps us believe. I pray your spirit would continue to move mightily in this congregation. I pray this all in Jesus' name. Amen.